0: Hello, you are listening to Maghreb in Past and Present podcasts, a space dedicated to history, art, culture, politics, sociology, anthropology, and many other subjects. This episode was recorded on October 23rd, 2017, at the Centre d'Etudes maghrebina Tunis, Tunis, CEMAT. In this podcast, we welcome Rebecca Gruskin, PhD candidate in history at Stanford University, presenting her research entitled Trade Unions, Armed Resistance and the Struggle for Independence Unlikely Alliances and Contested Nationalisms in the Gafsa Maining Basin from 1947 to 1963. الدقلا فارا جينها هزوها من حينها باعوها بالدينار، وعلى سرد القنطان
1: agriculture would be impossible without chemical fertilizers produced from phosphate rock. This is because the rise of input-heavy farming practices worldwide in the 19th and 20th centuries was predicated on access to phosphate-based fertilizers. In 1885, four years after France established a protectorate in Tunisia, rich phosphate deposits were discovered near the Algerian border in Tunisia's Gafsa region. In 1896, the French-owned Gafsa Phosphate and Railway Company was granted a 70-year concession to mine Gafsa's phosphates and build railway infrastructure for export via the port city of Sfax. The phosphate industry quickly became one of France's most important colonial interests in Tunisia. Foreign workers, primarily from Algeria, Tripolitania, Morocco, Italy and France, lived alongside Tunisian workers in the newly built mining towns of Medlewi, Radeif, Umlares, and later Mdille. This lecture is part of an ongoing dissertation project documenting the role of GAFSA's workers and their families in the new networks of capital that developed as Tunisia's economy was reoriented to prioritize phosphate exports. Today, I will focus on events in the mining basin during the post-World War II wave of anti-colonial resistance that eventually led to Tunisia's independence from France. I will argue that independence was neither a singular event nor a narrative rupture point. Rather, independence was a process, one in which the construction of the nation and the meaning of sovereignty were hotly contested by a wide variety of actors throughout the 1950s, even, and especially after formal independence was achieved on March 20th of 1956. These contestations were especially visible in the Gafsa mining basin because of the ways in which French economic and security imperatives intersected in this particular location. Presuming that Gafsa's anti-colonial resistance was part of a unified, homogeneous Tunisian nationalist movement presupposes the category of the nation at a time of disagreement and struggle over what precisely the nation should be. Therefore, and in contrast with most histories of Tunisian nationalism, which are centered on the political and social elite in Tunis, I will show how outcomes in Gafsa were determined by local actors operating within the context of transnational, Afro-Asian, anti-colonial movements more broadly, and I will show how local actors in Gafsa imagined alternate possibilities for post-independence Tunisia, possibilities that played a decisive role in the 1950s, even as it became clear by the early 1960s that they would not materialize. So the story of anti-colonial resistance and the gaps of mines is usually told within the broader history of organized labor movements in Tunisia. Since 1925, when the French colonial authorities dissolved the Confédération Générale des Travailleurs Tunisiens, Tunisian labor organization was left to the French Confédération Générale des Travailleurs, or CGT, and its Tunisian affiliate. These unions became primarily communist after the Second World War. However, many Tunisian workers felt that the CGT's ideology of workers' unity across nationalities was insufficient to address the problems of colonialism. This debate was relevant for the Gafsa mines, since Italian and French workers made up a substantial portion of the labour force. While Europeans often worked side-by-side with North African workers in unsafe mining tunnels, the hierarchy of jobs at the phosphate company was organized in racial terms. So-called "indigen" workers, were assigned the most dangerous tasks while receiving lower salaries, fewer opportunities for promotion, and fewer benefits. So in 1944, the Assistant Secretary General of the CGT, Farhat Hashid, resigned from his post and began organizing Tunisian workers, based on the premise that their social and economic emancipation could only be achieved with Tunisia's independence from France. Two years later, in 1946, Hashed founded the Union Générale des Travailleurs Tunisiens, or UGTT, and the Union developed a close, but by no means seamless, relationship with the Store party, which was the main nationalist party at the time. In the Gapsa mining basin, Ahmed Atlili is most commonly credited with organizing the phosphate company workers on behalf of the UGTT. Tlili was born near Gafsa City but not in a mining town, and he was educated at the prestigious Siddiqui College, the Sadiqiyya, in Tunis. As he became involved with the UGTT and the Neodastor Party, Tlili worked for the postal service, first in the mining town of Radeif and then in Gafsa City. Because Tlili had never worked in the mines, the UGTT's outreach in the mines depended in large part on Tlili's collaboration with several labor activists in the mining towns including Hassoun Bentahar, a mine worker who would become the head of the UGTT's local branch in Radeyev, and Bashir Dasheb, who was the treasurer of the UGTT branch in Mvilla. By the end of the 1940s, the UGTT had become one of the largest and most prominent unions in the Gafsa mining basin, but it was by no means the only one. Shortly after the UGTT was founded, The Tunisian affiliate of the CGT split from the group to form a new union, the Union des Syndicats des Travailleurs Tunisiens, or USTT, which, like the CGT, was primarily communist. As the USTT and the UGTT competed with each other to recruit workers, the UGTT argued that the workers' struggle was primarily a Tunisian nationalist struggle, while the USTT argued That Tunisian workers should be part of an international struggle against capitalist and imperialist exploitation. That said, the boundaries between these two um, ideological visions were sufficiently fluid at this time such that many workers switched back and forth between the two unions and other workers joined both unions to reap the benefits of membership in each. The two unions often collaborated with joint strikes, and as a result of this cooperation across ideological divisions, the number of strikes against the Phosphate Company dramatically increased from the end of 1947 into the 1950s. However, the trade union's anti-colonial labour activism was not the only form of resistance to French colonialism in the Gafsa mining basin. Starting in early 1952, French interests in Tunisia became the targets of an armed insurgency that was based primarily in rural and mountainous regions. And here I need to make a brief aside to explain to you why I have uh, chosen to refer to the participants in the armed insurgency as resistance fighters instead of using the many other words that might be available. Um, The word most commonly found in French um, documentary evidence um, is the word phalega, Uh, Falega was uh, meant to be a pejorative term meaning outlaw or or la loi, Um, although in recent protest movements it has been reclaimed as a positive thing, as a symbol of resistance against an unjust system. And I think it's because of this positive reclaiming of the word that the majority of um, Arabic language literature that I've read about this does refer to the resistance fighters as Falega. However, when I was speaking with um, participants in the armed resistance, In the Gassimani Basin, um, none of them use the word faleg. In fact, one of them told me outright that he found the word offensive, as though it implies that they were being violent for the sake of violence instead of having a uh, political program and thought through grievances that were were behind the reasons for the resistance. Um, They use the words muqawimin, also, uh, so resistance fighters, thawar, revolutionaries. Um, I occasionally heard mujahideen, um, although there are people, particularly those who lean left, who are concerned about this word in the sense that it implies that the um, primary grievance with the French was a religious one, instead of it being anchored in uh, political and economic exploitation and colonialism. So for purposes of this paper, I'm going to use the word resistance fighters as a literal translation of muqalameen, and I'm happy to take questions about this at the end of the talk. Um, so to continue, then um, this is early 1952. The armed insurgency um, is is starting off in Tunisia, and throughout Tunisia as a whole, the vast majority of the resistance fighters were poor, dispossessed farmers hailing from agricultural regions. Workers made up only a small percentage of the total. Because of this, the armed resistance and organized labor are rarely studied in conjunction with one another. However. The assumption that workers on the one hand and resistance fighters on the other were two distinct categories does not hold true in the gas mining basin. One of the most prominent armed resistance leaders was, in fact, a gasophosphate miner. Lazhar Shreiti had left the Mdila mines in 1947 to fight in Palestine, and after returning to the mines in 1949, he began to organize armed resistance to French rule in Tunisia the neo Destour party elite was aware of this. Habib Bourguiba, the neo Destour leader who would become Tunisia's president after independence, had contacted Eshreiti by the end of 1951. As for the trade unions, Ahmed Tlili, who was then head of the UGTT's local branch in Gafsa, was in communication with Eshreiti by January of 1952. Tlili also played a crucial role in organizing and logistically supporting early guerrilla operations against the French. On February 12th of 1952, Etlili and nine others were arrested and accused of participation in a guerrilla operation in which two French soldiers were killed. The operation took place in the mountain ridge running just north of Gafsa city, um, uh, west toward toward Metleoui. Furthermore, many of the armed insurgents in Gafsa were unemployed mine workers. Faced with declining phosphate prices on the global market, damaged infrastructure from the Second World War, and difficulties competing with Morocco's higher grade phosphates. The Gafsa Phosphate and Railway Company undertook a process of quote-unquote modernizing its operations throughout the 1950s that resulted in many workers losing their jobs. As unemployment rose, a large proportion of the mining basin strikes between 1946 and 1956 were in protest of company firings, in addition to demands for higher salaries and protests against unfair administrative practices. Meanwhile, many of the newly unemployed went up into the mountains to take up arms. And in the mining towns themselves, tensions arose as North African workers and their families were suspected of links to the armed resistance, and the French military subjected them to searches, curfews, and restrictions on movement. Some workers did in fact take up arms, either by quitting work entirely or by moving back and forth between the mines and the mountains after finishing their shifts or during strikes, but these workers were a small minority. The majority of North African workers, while not resistance fighters themselves, knew who the resistance fighters were and actively supported them. The mining towns, especially Radaev and Mvilla, became important logistical bases for the armed resistance, Networks of safe houses supported smuggling and resistance activities. Mine workers used trade union networks to gather weapons, clothes, and other provisions for the resistance fighters. These supplies were then smuggled to the small livestock farmers living outside the mining towns who passed the supplies on to the resistance fighters in the mountains. Workers also developed ingenious methods of smuggling explosives from the mining company, explosives which were intended for blasting into the mountains to create new mining tunnels. The son of a UGTT member in Mvilla and the son of an arms smuggler in Radeyev both recounted to me independently how individual workers would steal small amounts of explosives from their daily allotment while they were planting the charges in the mountains. After the charges were detonated, it would be impossible for the company to notice a few missing explosives amidst the burnt aftermath of the explosion. It would be impossible even for the workers on a team to notice which of their co-workers had stolen the explosives. Throughout this time period, the local French gendarmerie brigades stationed in the four mining towns constantly praised the mining company for successfully preventing any theft of explosives through strict surveillance of storage depots, not realizing that workers had developed alternative methods to steal explosives that did not depend on breaking into the storage depots and here i need to add a brief methodological note about the sources that my this talk and my dissertation are based on so my work has benefited greatly from the extensive archival collections in france particularly the protectorate archives and and the military archives in Vincennes, however this is one instance that really showcases the limits of relying exclusively on these kinds of sources, because somebody reading through the documents would have no idea that workers were smuggling explosives to the resistance fighters for the simple reason that, quite frankly, I think the French never figured out exactly what was going on. And so this is an example of where um, oral historical research and documentary research work together with one another, and and this has sort of been my approach in this talk and in my dissertation as a whole. So to continue then, in 1954, as the armed insurgency accelerated, fighting increased in the Gafsa region's mountains, including the same mountains, sometimes, from which phosphates were mined. And so there was a sort of a three-dimensional thing happening where the workers were underneath the mountains in the tunnels mining, and then in some of these same mountains above them, um, on the surface, the resistance fighters were fighting against the French. The UGTT and the Neur also strengthened their ties with the armed resistance throughout 1954, assisting with military training, most often at camps in Libya, and supplying the resistance fighters with weapons. It is no coincidence that negotiations on Tunisian internal autonomy began in Paris in September of 1954. With the fall of the French garrison at Phu earlier that year, many French military and political leaders were worried that the armed insurgency in Tunisia would evolve into a second Indochina. Among the conditions that the French negotiators imposed was the disarming of the resistance fighters. In Gafsa, Ahmed et working relationship with Lazhar Shreyti was instrumental in the Niyodastor's ability to convince Shreyti and his followers to surrender their weapons in December of 1954. Hasuna ibn Tahar, the UGTT activist in Radayef, who had collaborated with the Tlili to organize workers in the mining towns, also played a vital role in building the near contacts with the resistance fighters and in persuading them to surrender their weapons. As a result, a substantial portion but not all, of Gafsa's resistance fighters followed in Shreiti's footsteps by surrendering their weapons as well. The surrender of weapons was often carried out in the houses of local UGTT members. An elderly woman I spoke with who lived in Mvile in the 1950s remembers cooking couscous, shorba, soup, and marga, which is like a, a Tunisian stew, for a large dinner, in which Ahmed Talili, a group of Talili's colleagues, a group of resistance fighters, and the French all ate together. After the meal, the resistance fighters surrendered a large cache of weapons and received documents from the French that would protect them from prosecution for having participated in the armed resistance. However, the disarming of a substantial number of resistance fighters at the end of 1954 did not mean an end to violence and anti-colonial resistance in the mining basin. Many resistance fighters remained unconvinced that negotiated internal autonomy would end colonial repression. And some who did surrender their weapons secretly kept the best quality weapons for themselves, a task made easier by the fact that the French counted how many weapons were surrendered by each group of resistance fighters instead of by each individual. In addition, the outbreak of war in Algeria in November of 1954, substantially raised the stakes of anti-colonial resistance in GAFSA, Not only were the mines an important French economic interest located right along the Algerian border, but many of the workers themselves were Algerian or had links to Algeria. This was particularly true for the mining town of Radeyev. Movement of labour, goods and contraband across the Algerian border had been a constant facet of the mining basin's history. On April 5th through 7th of 1955, the French military conducted operations against Algerian resistance fighters in several border areas, including Radeyev, to protect French interests there. In response to the June 1955 Franco-Tunisian Accords, which granted Tunisia internal autonomy, but not full independence, guerrilla operations targeted the French and Italians in the Gafsa region. Lassar Shredi, however, was not involved in these operations. In June of 1955, Neo Dastur leader Habib Bourguiba returned from exile to triumphant celebrations in Tunis, and Shreti attended his welcoming party, along with other leaders of the armed resistance who had surrendered their weapons at the end of 1954. Ashreti spent much of the summer of 1955 touring the country with Bourguiba and bolstering Bourguiba's credentials among those who viewed the resistance fighters as heroes. The Neo Dastur party granted Ashreti a residence in the Beyes Palace in the coastal town of Hammam and Ashreti established a close relationship with Talibin Heri, who would become the Minister of the Interior after independence. However, Bourguiba's relationship with the ex-resistance fighters was not without tension, and questions of how much special treatment they deserved from the party elite or which resistance leaders deserved the most credit were left unresolved. Throughout 1955, questions about the efficacy of negotiated independence and Tunisia's role in the broader anti-imperial struggles were at the heart of continued guerrilla activity in the Gafsa mining basin. And in October of 1955, these same questions split the neo party in two. The neo destour secretary general, Salah Ben Youssef, was removed from his post and expelled from the party after condemning Bourguiba for his French-oriented vision of Tunisian modernity and his neglect of Pan-Arab and Pan-Maghreb issues. As Ben Youssef attempted to recruit fighters for armed resistance, not only against the French presence in Tunisia, but also against Bourguiba himself, guerrilla activities in the Gafsa region intensified and the mines themselves increasingly became the targets of guerrilla operations. Later in October, Algerian resistance fighters, along with Tunisian resistance fighters, aligned with Ben Youssef, attacked the Brashim mine in Radeyev, destroying mining equipment and killing three French higher level company workers. Meanwhile. Pro-Yusufist workers continued to smuggle company explosives to both the Yusufist and the Algerian resistance fighters. By November of 1955, French military leaders had become deeply worried that they had lost control of the Algerian border, in large part because of attacks against French mining interests, particularly in Umlaris and Redeyev. Around this time, Lazharushreti began to form paramilitary groups in Gafsa and the surrounding regions, led by resistance fighters who, like himself, had surrendered their weapons at the end of 1954 and supported Bourguiba. These pro-Bourguiba resistance fighters fought the pro-Ben Yusuf resistance fighters through guerrilla operations and targeted assassinations. Tunisia's independence from France on March 20th of 1956 did nothing to stop the conflict. In fact, March of 1956 was one of the bloodiest months in the Gafsa region. In the spring of 1956, at Bourguiba's behest, French troops entered the fray to help Bourguiba's new government eliminate the Yusufists. Bourguiba's attempts to win over the pro-Ben Yusuf resistance fighters in the mountains of Radeyev also bore no fruit, in large part because Bourguiba was unwilling to negotiate their demands, official acknowledgement of the Yusufist resistance's vital role in the history of Tunisia's independence struggle, and a government commitment to provide them with monetary stipends, jobs, and other such privileges. Meanwhile, In an attempt to shore up his nationalist credentials, Bourguiba's government began to channel arms and provisions to the National Liberation Front, or FLN, in Algeria via Ahmed Tlili's connection with Lazhar Shreti. Tlili served as the Bourguiba regime's point person for relations with the FLN, and Shreti was able to facilitate the logistics on the ground. The Yusufists also smuggled provisions and weapons to Algerian resistance fighters, particularly British-made weapons, abandoned during the Second World War in Libya. Yusufist networks facilitated their transport across the Libyan border into Tunisia, and once they arrived in the Gafsa region, they were smuggled on public buses along the gefsa Umari serdeyev line before being distributed to the Algerian resistance fighters and the Yusufists. Supplies for the Yusufists did not only come from North Africa. At the Bandung Conference in 1955, Salah ben Yusuf had made contacts with Zhu Enlai, the premier of the People's Republic of China under Mao Zedong. On April 23rd of 1956, supplies arrived for the Yusufists from China via Libya. The Egyptian government had helped with the logistics of transport. Not only were the Gafsa mining towns important way stations along smuggling routes, mining infrastructure was also used to manufacture weapons for the resistance fighters. In May of 1956, A local informant revealed to French army intelligence that the Metlewy Mines Atelier, or workshop, was being used to manufacture guns for the resistance fighters. These guns were basic, the informant had said, but they were manufactured with precision and operated well. Their range was approximately 40 to 45 meters when loaded with buckshot and 60 to 65 meters when loaded with standard bullets. While the report does not dwell on the makers of these weapons, it is highly unlikely that they could have been manufactured in the mine's workshop without the involvement of the workers, whether as facilitators or as the actual laborers who performed the metalwork. From late 1955 and increasing throughout 1956, residents of the mining towns were again subject to searches and nighttime raids, the French military, pro bourguiba paramilitary groups, and, after independence, the Tunisian army and police under Bourguiba's government detained any suspected Yusufists. The question of who was responsible for alleged torture and summary execution of detainees remains politically charged today. In addition to strikes, in protest of low salaries and company firings, North African workers frequently went on strike throughout 1956 to protest daily military repression and the continued presence of French soldiers on Tunisian soil workers also went on strike in protest against assassinations on both sides of the conflict. Because both the Algerian and the Yusufist resistance fighters often targeted French and Italian workers, these workers requested and were granted arms to carry in self-defense. However, this only exacerbated tensions further, as the UGTT called a strike to protest against the arming of the European workers. In the end, the violence of 1955 and 1956 precipitated the French and Italian workers' departure from Tunisia. The phosphate company's rapid loss of its so-called expert miners, in addition to strikes and attacks on the mines, severely hampered the company's ability to extract and export gases phosphates. By July of 1956, the combined force of pro paramilitary groups and the French military had successfully neutralized the Yusufist threat to Bourguiba's regime. To orient anti-imperialist sentiment away from challenges to his rule, Bourguiba emphasized unified support for the Algerian revolution and protest against the continued presence of French soldiers in parts of Tunisia. Lazarus Shredi found himself among the capital's new elite, living in a villa and enjoying privileged access to the Ministry of the Interior. In the Gafsa Mining Basin, assassinations continued, and Algerian resistance fighters continued to operate particularly in Radeyev. In response, French military forces in Algeria undertook frequent cross-border raids that the Tunisian government vigorously protested, particularly after the Tunisian government officially gained control of the border from France on October 16th of 1956. That continued resistance activity in Gafsa ought not to be viewed as an interior region phenomenon isolated from the coasts is evident in a December 1956 French Army report. Frozen fish trucks were smuggling weapons from Zarzis and Gavis through the Gafsa mining basin before heading north across the Algerian border to Tibessa. Throughout 1956 and 1957, the Tlili-Shréti connection remained an important conduit for the clandestine flow of provisions to the FLN across the Tunisian-Algerian border. Provisions also passed through Radeyev to Algerian resistance fighters who were FLN dissidents. Only in 1958, after extensively applying counterinsurgency techniques such as gridding, controls on movement, and intensive surveillance, were the French able to contain guerrilla activities in the frontier region. As for Shredi, his life of privilege did not last, after the Bourguiba regime's disastrous attempt to force French soldiers out of their naval, naval base in Benzert in July of 1961, Shreti was part of a diverse group of Tunisians who began to plot a coup d'etat. At a meeting in Shreti's villa in late 1962, disagreements arose not only over the logistics of the coup, but also over the question of whether Borghibe's assassination would be required. Shortly thereafter, one of the plotters betrayed the group. Shredi and the others were arrested in December of 1962. During his trial, Shredi emphasized his history of collaboration with Borghibe in the 1950s, but to no avail. Shredi was one of several members of the coup to be sentenced to death and executed in January of 1963. He was buried in an unmarked grave at an unknown location. By executing Shreti, the Bourguiba regime also violently excised him from the dominant narrative of Tunisia's independence struggle. Only after Ben Ali's departure in 2011 did Shreti's family try to rehabilitate him, an attempt complicated by the involvement of Tunisia's current president in Shreti's arrest and execution. And Shreti was not alone. Hassan Sa'adewi, leader of the communist USTT, Died in suspicious circumstances in police custody shortly after Shreti was killed, as the Bourguiba regime used the attempted coup to repress communists. A few years later, Ahmed Atlili would also fall out with Bourguiba, although the regime rehabilitated him after his death in exile in 1967. Shreti's death encapsulates the reasons why the networks and alliances outlined in this talk seem so unlikely today and why histories of Tunisian trade unionism are rarely studied in juxtaposition with anti-colonial insurgency. These networks, alliances, and juxtapositions illustrate how unified antagonism against French colonialism does not presume unified interests, goals, and visions of the nation. In part because the Bourguiba regime alighted these divisions while simultaneously building on French inherited structures of control, the economic patterns and structural problems that underlay anti-colonial resistance in Gafsa persisted after Tunisia's independence. That, coupled with the post-independence mechanization of the phosphate industry and the gradual switch from tunnel to open pit mining which is less labor-intensive, and the neoliberal structural adjustment programs in the 1990s All of these factors together have overdetermined the Gafsa mining basin's current high employment and economic difficulties, and these problems continue to raise questions about the viability of Tunisia's procedural democracy today.
0: Thank you for listening to Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts. Other episodes are available on our website www.magrebpodcast.com as well as on iTunes and Podbean. For more information on our podcasts like our Facebook page Maghreb in Past and Present Podcasts or visit the web pages of the American Institute for Maghreb Studies and the Centre d'études maghrébines à Tunis (CEMAT). See you soon for a new episode. <laughs>